We are in a uh, series on the book of Colossians, and uh, briefly introduced it last week, and we're going to work our way through this book. And uh, I, I decided uh, sometime in the middle of the week that, uh, that I'm not going to overwhelm you with information. The book of Colossians is uh, absolutely packed with great stuff, and uh, we're just going to take bits and pieces of it, and we're going to talk about it. And it's my prayer that as you hear and as you interact with this, uh, that it will, in fact, transform you and change you. That's my prayer every Sunday, uh, every day, that I'll be transformed, that you will be transformed as well. With that said, let's kind of launch into this. Um, Last week, I uh, made the statement that we live in a funny age, uh, a strange age, an age that's filled with, with tension, Uh, on some levels. We live in an age in which the sheer number of literatures and religions and philosophies are both overwhelming and they're confusing. This is an age that we live in that's not unlike the age that the Apostle Paul lived in and wrote into. And when he wrote his letter to the Colossians, I said this last week, but his primary reason was to combat a confused and confusing philosophy that was circulating and threatening to disrupt, if not destroy, this young, struggling church. And by the time his letter arrived in Colossae, those who were espousing this new philosophy were clearly beginning to have an impact on those young believers in this church. Uh, This philosophy was beginning to undermine their confidence and their hope in Christ. It was beginning to affect their belief that Christ was truly at the center of their faith and their belief. Paul's response to this threat is bold and it's unequivocal. He declares that everything that anyone could ever want to know about God is found in Jesus Christ. And that Jesus Christ is alone at the center of everything, especially, especially, and this is my paraphrase, the church. This is a response that I believe is as relevant today as it was 2,000 or 1,950 years ago. Last week I left you with a question and a challenge, and this was it. What would it look like for you and me to live a life that's worthy of the Lord and pleasing to Him in every way? What would it look like for you and I to live lives that are worthy of the Lord and pleasing to Him in every way? A life that has a positive effect on us and moreover, a life that has a positive effect on those around us. What would that look like? I hope you've thought about that this week. This morning I want us to look closely at the first eight verses of this book and see what we must do. What we must understand if we're to truly live the kind of life that Paul talks about. Listen to the first eight verses of Paul's letter to the Colossians. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God, our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all his people, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true word of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it 
and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and you also told us of your love, who also told us, told us of your love in the Spirit. Well, the first two verses are Paul's introduction to the Colossians. And they are typical of the introductions that he wrote in most of his letters. He introduces himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus. That is, as one who is on a mission. As one who is on a mission to bring the good news to people who have never heard the good news before. He's an apostle of Christ. And then he provides a brief description of those to whom he is writing, to the Colossian believers. God's holy people, he calls them. Faithful brothers and sisters, he calls them. But when you look more closely at verse 2, we discover that these Colossian believers were both in Colossae and they were in Christ. Although these brothers and sisters reside in Colossae, they live in Christ. Their true home is in Christ. And that's really the intent behind this introduction. That these people who live in this city who reside there, are really at home. They really live in Christ. And it's the first thing that we need to understand if we're going to live a life that's worthy of the Lord and pleasing to Him in every way. When we believe, when we embrace the Christian faith, when we step over the line, we begin to live in Christ. We begin to live in Christ. Now this short prepositional phrase, in Christ, occurs frequently in Paul's writings. In fact, it occurs 164 times in the New Testament. It is central to his understanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, of what it means to be a Christian. In fact, according to Paul, both in Colossians and in his other letters, being in Christ, living in Him, means at least five things. First, to be in Christ means that we are incorporated into Him, so that He encompasses our entire life. We're incorporated into Him so that He encompasses our entire life. F.F. Bruce was an incredible biblical scholar who died not too many years ago. And he put it like this, and you need to listen to this carefully. When we are in Christ, He is no longer simply the object of our faith. But He is the living environment within which we exercise faith. When we accept Christ, when we live in Him, He no longer is just simply the object. He's the environment in which we exercise faith. Think of it this way. If I could draw a huge circle, typically what we would do is we would say, this circle represents my life. And everything within this circle represents parts of my life, including faith. So within this circle, faith, vocation, relationships, whatever it might be. What Paul's asking us to think about here, and I think this is incredible, is that this circle isn't our life. Well, it is our life, but it's our life in Christ. You see? And faith isn't just one component that fits inside that circle. This is faith. This is life in Christ. And all of those other things simply are informed by that, by Christ. That is very different than the way most of us live our lives in Christ. That is very different than saying, faith is one piece of my life. 
This is saying that when I am in Christ, Christ informs everything in my life. We may reside in Portland, in Beaverton, in Gresham, in Seattle, in Salem, in San Diego, but we live in Christ. The only identity that matters to God ultimately is that we are in Christ, that we are His faithful followers, that He informs who we are and what we do. And this means that He determines everything we do, everything that we do, our behaviors, our attitudes, our relationships, our vocations, and yes, even the places we live, even the places we live. To be in Christ also means that we are joined exclusively to Him. We cannot be in Sophia. We cannot be in Buddha. We cannot be in Muhammad or in any other religious leader, no matter how influential, no matter how compelling they may be. We cannot be in them and also be in Christ. We can't be like the follower of the Dalai Lama that I talked about last week who described himself as a Christian Taoist Buddhist Shinto. And yet that is a picture of the culture we live in. I want a piece of this and a piece of that and a piece of this and I can put them together and it'll be a good one. It'll be a good religion. That's not to say that there's not truth, that there's not value in religions, other religions. But it's to say that when we are in Christ, we are joined exclusively to Him. Next, to be in Christ means that He determines our behavior. I mentioned it earlier, but it's worth further discussion. right? For those of us who follow Christ, there are certain behaviors, attitudes, and actions that simply are no longer appropriate. That is, they simply don't make any sense when we understand that we are joined to Christ and that we're living in Him, that we're connected to Him. This means that some of us need to stop getting drunk every time we go out. It means some of us need to quit smoking pot or looking at pornography or sleeping around or doing a million other things that we do. It doesn't make sense to do that anymore. We need to grow up. And in Christ, our life is no longer our own. And our bodies are no longer ours to do with as we please. You see, Paul was writing about this philosophy, and part of the philosophy said that you can do whatever you want to do with your body because that's not the important thing. The really important thing is the soul. And so whatever you do with your body, that's fine because actually the flesh, the body, is just kind of this evil thing. And what really matters is the soul. So have at it. Do whatever you want with your bodies, but the soul is what matters. And so in that context, in 1 Corinthians also, Paul writes, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself. And he was writing this to someone who was sleeping with a prostitute. Your bodies no longer belong to yourself. Jesus Christ determines our behavior. And some of us honestly need to grow up. Further, to be in Christ means that we are inseparably and eternally joined to him. Inseparably and eternally joined to him. In other words, there is nothing, there is absolutely nothing in all of creation, anything that we've done or could ever do that will ever, ever, ever separate us from the love of God in Christ. Once you're in Christ, you belong to Him. That's the good news. The bad news for some of us is once you're in Christ, you belong to Him and there's no getting away from Him. He is relentless. He will hunt you down. He'll chase you. As we heard in Psalm 139, He hems us in. 
And that can either be wonderful news or incredibly frightening news. And for me, it's been both in my life. There's times when I just thank Him that that's who He is. There's other times when I just want Him to leave me alone. You may be feeling that this morning. There's no getting away from His love. There's nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ. If you don't believe it, read Romans 8 sometime. It's amazing. God loves us that much. And finally, to be in Christ means that we are joined to a new family. For some of you, that is incredibly good news because, quite frankly, the families that you come from have been less than helpful. The church, the family of God, the body of Christ is the place where dividing lines and walls that separate us are broken down. At least they should be, right? At least they should be. This new family is a safe place to learn and to grow up into Christ. At least it should be. This new family is a community in which our relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ supersede all human and other family ties. And when we truly begin to live in Christ, the church, in the best sense of the word, becomes our family. It becomes our family. So here's a question that I want you to ponder this morning. Think about this. When people look at your life, and by the way, people look at your life. When they do, when they look at your attitudes, your response to difficulties, quality of your relationships, your attraction to money and material things, what would lead them to believe that you are living in Christ? What would lead them to believe that you are living in Christ? Let's move on. The next thing that we discover in this passage, in verses 3 through 5, is that faith, love, and hope familiar words are characteristics that identify those who are in Christ, those who seek to life, to live a life that is worthy of Him and pleasing to Him in every way. Faith, love, and hope. You've heard those before, not in that order. Faith, first of all, biblical faith is not simply something that we think about or discuss. I fear that that's where faith is for too many of us. Let's sit down and have a discussion about faith. Faith is something to be lived out. Biblical faith is not merely intellectual agreement with a set of facts about God, even though it includes that. It's the recognition that these facts about God are true. In fact, they're so true that they compel me to do something, to act. Faith is active. It's not passive. Faith acts on what it believes. If you believe, you do something. Read Hebrews 11. By faith, this person did this. By faith, this person did that. And the list goes on and on and on. Faith is active. Some of us need to begin to move the discussion into action. I can listen to you talk about faith. I can argue with you all day long. But what are you doing? What one thing are you doing? Because of your faith and your love for Christ. Speaking of love, as it's described in the New Testament, it has little to do with emotions or feelings. Although it has something to do with those things, it has everything to do with action. Actions that are aimed at improving the welfare of other people. Selfless actions. Biblical love is patterned after God's self-giving love. His agape love. The kind of love 
that he demonstrated when he gave his only son to die on the cross for you and for me. Love is active. And this faith and love, says Paul in the first part of verse 5, they spring, they come from hope. Hope that's stored up for you and me in heaven. In our culture, hope has become associated with blind optimism. For example, I hope the Portland State Vikings win a national championship in something, someday. I hope the Oregon State Beavers win the national championship in baseball. I hope I win the lottery, because then I could give 10% to the church. I hope I get a raise. I hope I get a job. I hope I get married. I hope it doesn't rain today. I hope it does rain. On and on we go. But the hope that Paul refers to is something altogether different. Altogether different. When Paul talks about hope, he's looking forward to the glorious future that Christ has in store for us. He's looking forward to heaven. Not merely pie in the sky, but a place. A real place where you and I, as believers in Christ, will someday live. A place that is utterly beyond our comprehension. A place where you and I will experience salvation once and for all. We don't think about heaven much. And why is that? Because this place that we live is pretty heavenly. Francis Schaeffer wrote 40 years ago. He said that 40 years from now, the number one thing that will occupy people's minds, their lives, will be creating a bit of heaven on earth, financial wealth and comfort. I think that we are absolutely zeroed in on that in our culture, all of us. I want to create a piece of heaven. I want a place to live where there's no conflict, where there's no more crying, where there's no more, you know, I, I want it to be perfect. And it's not, of course, but I think we're all after that. And you see, Paul wrote, and if your life was threatened, if someone was going to use you as a tiki torch for a Roman parade, you might look forward to heaven. And these early Christians did. It was far better than what they were experiencing. And I think it's so much better than anything we can imagine. But we sort of lost sight of that. We are in this process. Some of us have been saved. There was a point in time. We are in the process of being saved, of becoming more like Christ. And someday, and this is what Paul's getting at here, we will be saved. Finally, ultimately, we will be saved. Here's another question. How do these characteristics, faith, love, and hope, manifest themselves in your life? Do they manifest themselves in your life these days? Is your faith active? Is your love active? Is your hope based on something other than what you accumulate? Well, moving on to the second half of this verse, Paul says that the source of our hope is found in the true word of the gospel. Or some of your translations may say, in the word of truth. The power of this true word, of this good news, of this gospel, is another thing we need to understand if we're to live a life worthy of the Lord and pleasing to Him in every way. And according to Paul, this gospel, this good news, has four pieces to it. First of all, it's true. It's true. Belief in and an informed commitment to the truth of the gospel is absolutely essential to our faith. As followers of Christ... And listen to this carefully. You and I are no longer engaged in a quest for truth. As followers of Christ, we're no longer in that process. We have met the truth. 
We know the truth. The truth has redeemed us and set us free. Jesus Christ is the truth. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Truth is not an idea or a concept. It's a person. Chew on that for a minute. We can't back away from people who will say to us, what is truth? All truth is relative. Your version of the truth and my version of the truth may be different, but it doesn't really matter. It's okay. Each of us needs to learn, perhaps more now than ever before, to present the distinctive truth embodied in Christ in articulate and compelling and compassionate and in persuasive ways to people. We need to live it out. I want you to notice this. In his letter, Paul doesn't simply reject this philosophy as an error, as a heresy, or even as something that's stupid. He provides reasoned arguments for why the Christian faith is so far superior to this or any other philosophy. When compared, Christianity is this, these other things are this. The gospel is true. It's also universal. It's growing throughout the whole world. This is the second thing he says. And in our day, just as in Paul's day, the power of this gospel is being evidenced all over the world. There are a number of you who have traveled all over the world to Africa, to Russia, to South America. And you know that this is true. The gospel is being proclaimed everywhere. It's sweeping across geographic and racial boundaries. And it's changing people's lives against all odds. This true word of the gospel, this good news of God's grace, is speaking into every culture. And we sometimes get so connected to our own situation that we don't see it. It's huge. It's everywhere. And it's bearing fruit. People's lives are being transformed. And you can look around and you can see evidence of this everywhere. And this was Paul's point. Everywhere people are coming to faith, they're being converted, and they're following Jesus Christ. It is happening everywhere. I was at Regent College in Vancouver, B.C. on part of my trek through seminary that took a long time. One of the things that I absolutely loved about that community is it was so incredibly international. And when I sat down and heard stories of stuff that was going on all over the world... It just totally broadened my faith. I thought, you know, God is not just a God that's doing things in the United States. God is active all over the world. The covenant church in Africa is twice the size of the covenant church in America. Albert Schweitzer once said, just as a tree without fruit and growth would no longer be a tree, so a gospel that bears no fruit ceases to be a gospel. Because the gospel is God's powerful word, It continues to grow and to bear fruit, even when we don't see it. And the last thing that he says about the good news, and this is probably the most profound thing of all, and probably should be the most scary thing for us, is that this gospel is delivered by people. By people like you and me. Wait a minute. I'm not a pastor. This gospel, amazingly, unbelievably, has been entrusted to us. We're the delivery system. We deliver the good news. We deliver this word that transforms people's lives. You and me. God has chosen us to be His mouthpieces. His ambassadors. His apostles. His evangelists. His prophets. His pastors. His teachers. That's all of us. 
He didn't believe that he was the only one qualified to preach. He may have believed that he was the only one that really did it well, but he didn't believe he was the only one. Although he was called and commissioned by God to do so, Paul couldn't be everywhere at one time. And so he equipped others to do the work of the ministry. Now, there is a novel idea. I'm your pastor. I've been called by God to preach, to teach, and to pray for you, to lead. But each of you is uniquely gifted to serve Christ and to serve this church. And my job, along with the leaders, the other leaders in this church, is to equip you, to encourage you, to kick you in the fanny from time to time to be ministers, to be the people that God's called you to be. We are in this missionary effort together. We are not only brothers and sisters in Christ, but we are partners in the gospel, you and I. Like Paul and Epaphras, you and I are fellow servants of Christ. And our mission is the same. To make converts and to help those converts become disciples. Devoted followers of Jesus. This has always been the mission of the church. It certainly was Paul's mission and it needs to continue to be ours. If you're unclear about what the mission of this church is, what our purpose is, here it is. And this is worded differently than you may see it in some of our literature, but I don't care. This is, how, this is what we meant to say, right? Our purpose is to make converts into disciples, to help sinners, you and me, become saints, and to grow flawed men and women into devoted followers of Christ. That's what we're about. Well, beginning in verse 9, Paul moves from his general greeting to a specific prayer of intercession for the Colossians, and this is where we're going to pick it up next week. So, please come back.